This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. In this Coach Developer podcast, I speak to Kirk Vallis and talk about creative thinking. We explore five different scenarios that people working in coach development might experience and apply some of Kirk's principles to help them have one more option. You might want to press pause after each scenario and give yourself time to let your brain digest some of the ideas that Kirk shares. We hope you enjoy this chat, which is full of gold. Hello and welcome to our Coach Developer Podcast. Uh, My name's Tom and I'm joined today by Kirk from Google. Hi, Kirk. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Fantastic. Kirk, just to kick us off, would you please just tell us a little bit who you are and what you do? Yeah, I always, it's always dangerous when you're introduced as just like your your identity is the company you work for. Yeah, because, it's a, you know, it's a bit like when you record something for the BBC and then it goes out on Dave five years later and it's totally different. <laughs> um, not that I've ever recorded anything for either of those channels. Uh, but yes, my day job currently is at Google and hopefully that will last a long time. I, um, listen, I, I, how old do I best describe it? I, I, I'd like to think I help people use creativity to solve problems. There's actually lots of ways to solve problems, right? But I think, you know, investing in new ideas, challenging your autopilot thinking, um, creating options, and then and then picking the best one is um, is a good, you know, is a good approach, especially when you want different answers. So that's what I do. I do that in two ways: projects, so teams who want to be disrupted, who recognise they they need to be creative around something, um, digital well-being. How do we help? People have a better relationship with their tech, um, right through to you know commercial teams. How do we help to sort of position YouTube as an alternative to TV? You know that kind of stuff. So that's within Google. Um, but then I also spend a lot of time um, giving people the skills and techniques that, and importantly, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit about today, the behaviour and mindset that allows you to do it on demand more often to come up with different options. Amazing. Um, really interesting, Kirk. And I think people might be listening thinking, well, how does this relate to my world and coaching in sport and, and supporting coaches as well? So in terms of our, our discussion today, um, what we're going to do is explore some some scenarios that, that people who support coaches might come across. And I guess as a caveat to the discussion, I think for me, this this discussion might not give everyone listening all the answers but it will certainly highlight some principles on on how to approach different problems that I guess can adapt for their own world. Yeah, so I think that's a lovely way of looking at it. I'm I've actually, you know, outside of Google, I get the opportunity to work with sort of non-competing organizations and sport is a great example of that. So, you know, I've been really lucky to I run I run a module as part of the um uh, the English FA's pro license, for example, all on creative problem solving. So there's actually a risk that I'm almost getting more and more involved in sport to the point that my naivety or lack of it st- stops me from being an advantage. But as of today, yeah, I, I, my, the, the fact that I don't have the expertise in your world is what I actually think gives me the ability to offer a fresh perspective because I'm not going to try and solve your challenges. I might just talk about how how I would look at it in the context of my world. And actually the hard, the only hard work that people listening to this have to do is to go, What's the principle and how does that apply to my world? Because it will. It definitely will. There'll be loads of situations where it won't, um, but there's also situations where it absolutely will apply. And that's the bit that you've got to filter through. 
before we before we get into the scenarios and, and talk about that, Kurt, um, a great way to kick off really is what what would be your definition of creativity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I, know, I mean I knew that question was going to come up. I was um, I run you know there is a five day version of the kind of practitioners program that I run within Google and with a couple of other partners as well. Um, and uh, which we definitely don't have time for. So what's the other end of the spectrum where, you know, in one in one sentence, I think it's um, listen, creativity is the habit and mindset of approaching things differently like that. that if, if we wanted the kind of sort of textbook definition, that's what I would that's what I would say. Actually, even more of a shorthand or a bit more real world uh, creativity is options. That's what it is, right? Um, it's just, and the ability and the skill of being creative, it is a skill, it's a developed skill that we can all practice, is the ability to create options. That, that's all I think it is. It's just the ability to create options that I always say, like, more options, better decisions. That's all it is. Two, two modes of thinking needed for creativity, um, possibility and options, but then also analysis, judgment and, and decision making. And our biggest, um, and actually, like, and I think that in, in itself helps people to reappraise their relationship with creativity, because I think a lot of people would put it, would, would you know, categorize the first um, mode of thinking, I said, possibility and options. But if that's all you have, that's creativity, that's jazz hands in the air, right, folks, blue sky thinking, you know, and that only ever happens at off sites or when times are good. And, you know, if we want creativity, and I do, to be a critical skill for everybody to rely on at the, then actually it needs to be something that people use when times are tough and and it'll only be given that reputation if we enable ourselves to kind of see two modes of thinking i need to create options possibility and options new ideas but then i need to analyze judge and make the right decisions and actually that second bit we're actually really good at it's probably what's got most of us to where we've got to um today so even if you think you're not creative by default of being an adult human being in the world, you probably have 50% of the skill as an expert, i.e. analysis, judgment, decision-making. So all it is is just about then allowing you to have more freedom in your practice of developing options. You know, one more option. What would be one more option in this, in this situation? And that's easier said than done and, um, because we are hardwired against developing options. Our brain loves efficiency. You know, I'll ask... I'll ask a question. You can answer it, Tom, and hopefully people listening can answer it in their own heads or shout it out to the to their speaker, in which case they'll sound a bit weird because no one can probably hear them around them. But um, but let you know, let me ask you a few questions about about me. Right. Indulge me. All right. What do you what car do you think I drive? Oh, um, I'm going to say Mercedes. A Mercedes. Any particular model? Color? It's, I, I'm not great on cars. I'm going to say AM. It says AMG on the back. All oh, right, right, okay. Yeah, the the oh, flash yeah. one, or at least trying to be a flash one. If it's, if it's yeah, another one there. Right, okay, cool. Flash Mercedes, dark, dark. I love it. Right, there we go. Uh, favorite food? What do you think my favorite food is? Oh, I think you love a bit of tagliatelle. Uh, prawn, prawn tagliatelle. Oh, love it. Oh, you go. I love the specificity now that you get. <laughs> All right, last one. Um, uh, lockdown ends. You know, post this pandemic that we're currently in when recording this. Uh, where would I love to go on holiday? Good question. Um, it's it's going to be Maldives somewhere, somewhere, <laughs> Lucy, uh, White Beach. Yeah, that's... Oh, I love it. Oh, man. Um, all good. Well, listen, um, 
we can do maybe in the outtakes we can i can give you the actual answers but the answers don't matter the question is um where did those answers come from in your head um well, i don't know maybe maybe because we've spoken a few times i've built up a picture of maybe the world that you exist in yeah um, and and yeah perhaps with the job that you've got and um the ex expertise that you have yeah um maybe I, I i draw a few commonalities with things i've seen and maybe not experience not me to the thieves but yeah <laughs> amazing but but well and actually i would say it's experience but it's experience of people a bit like me now we've chatted a few times but but not to that level where we've got to know each other to that sort of level of personal um um you know personal understanding um but it doesn't stop your brain from going, who have I seen a bit like this person before? So it could be one of your good friends who has a similar accent to me and you just, and that creates that link. It could just be what you associate with Londoners or like you say, people who work in tech in an exec job, You've pro your brain is probably in the background doing some analysis of likelihood of income and what that might then afford me the ability, all, all of those things, right? We build assumptions, stereotypes, you might, you might say. Yeah. Um, and, but this is what our brain does for everything. Right. And um, and that's not a bad thing. Right. That's what helps us to keep keep efficient. Every time we are faced with a situation, our brain says, where have I seen this before? And even if there isn't a you you know, you don't you haven't been faced with that question before where what's my car? But you but your brain then says, where have I been faced with a situation a bit like this before? Other people that I would associate as being a bit like her. And and that's brilliant. Right. So these kind of all of this past experience, information and knowledge is is brilliant in lots. It's what helps us to function as a high performing human being um, and, you know, building up repetition of all of that experience, information and knowledge um, starts to get clustered together by our brains into areas of perceived similarity for ease of recall. OK, I, I would call this streams of consciousness. And this is a good thing, right? The fact that I have loads of past experience of how to, how to open a door handle. Um, this is a podcast, but you've just taken a sip of your tea. The fact that you know how to pick up that cup and drink from it is a good thing. Imagine having to reappraise that every time you try wanted to have a um, have a drink, right? You know, we, we wouldn't be the, 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 the species that we are. But then fast forward 20, 30, 40 years or more that we're alive, particularly in our areas of paid expertise. We have got so much past knowledge, experience and information about it that they're no longer just streams of consciousness. You know, we could call them, you know, if every bit of experience or knowledge is a raindrop, well, they've just become rivers of thinking, deep, vast rivers of thinking and credit to Edward de Bono for, for that expression. Um, and here's the punchline. Rivers of thinking are brilliant if there is one right answer. If you want fact, this is the, the, the one answer. Um, it's brilliant because the more experience, knowledge or information you have, the more likely the answer is um, in there. But the moment there is more than one potential right answer or way of doing something or approaching a challenge, all of that past experience and expertise is terrible because it stops you from considering new options. Right. So I think, that, you know, the, the, the punchline here, I suppose, is your expertise will serve you well 90 percent of the time. And, you know, that should reassure most people listening to this to this but we also need to recognize that it's the biggest barrier to our ability to think differently when we need some more options or some different ideas to help us have even more impact in whatever we're doing nice nice, nice. i can see that um right i think we've set the scene really nicely i'm sure that people listening are really interested to kind of understand maybe what some of these principles are that you've spoken about and and kind of the, the situations that we're going to apply so the first one 
Uh, we're going to talk about a tutor um, when they're working with their learners. Right. Is this lead tutor for a level two qualification? Um, they, they understand that they need to deliver um, to the cohort, but finding it difficult to make the learning really exciting and engaging. So, how could the tutor stick to the principles of the qualification, but find a way to engage the learners and make the learning as sticky as possible? Yeah, okay. Um, so a few things, I'll do a few caveats very quickly, and this will probably apply to the others as well, so it won't have to be. So there's a couple of things here. Um, there'll be, one of the things I found is eight years ago when I joined Google and the last sort of decade or so that I've been working in the space of innovation and creativity, when I started, it was a real specialism, right? It was a real sort of standalone specialist. Um, but now it's become part of sort of everyday work in every course, um, you know, general behavior. So please don't overanalyze this. If this sounds, you know, I'm from what it sounds like that description, I'm going to get a bit into kind of like learning, you know, communication styles a little bit. And you might go, well, what's that got to do with creativity? Don't overthink it. Let's, you know, I'll, and again, I'm, I'm just going to offer my perspective and it, and I'm sure there'll be other principles. It's just provocation. It's another option that might just get you to think of it differently. Um, so, so this is a great one, right? So this is a great example where rivers of thinking are running like crazy, big flow, large current, because your brain will go, well, how have I done it before? I've been really efficient. Like I have delivered this training time and time again in this way. And so your brain is going, I don't, I don't, I don't want to proactively consider new ways. So if nothing else, if all you, so I think in, this is a great example where just having the awareness of rivers of thinking is enough to help us then have more impact. Because if we, all we do is go, I, I have a lot, by the way, I have a lot of people come up to me after sessions and programs I run and talks and go, thank you, Kirk, I, that rivers of thinking piece, I, I'll no longer be in one. I'm going to make a commitment not to be in one. Like, they're not a bad thing. And, and it's, you, you're always in one, right? And that's a good thing. So it's just about going in this in, instance, first thing for this tutor would be, just recognize you are in a river of thinking. Your past experience of doing this means you're in one. So just then go, and if you consciously want a few more options of how you might do it a bit differently, just protect a bit of time. Like, okay, before I just jump to the same old way, just step back, what could be one or two other ways of doing it? Like, even just asking yourself that question, you're preparing your brain to then go, okay, right, I might have something else in here that I haven't even been invited to offer before. So I think that's, that's this a great example of, of, of just the, the practice of recognizing. I always, you know, hashtag one more option. I don't think there is a hashtag one more option existing on any social platform, but you know, if, if you think about it, your brain will always give you one option based on how it was done before. So if all we do is press pause and go, what could be one more option? Well, maths tells us that that's 100% more options you're then dealing with. I, I quite like those numbers. And even if you then go with the original, the autopilot reaction that you had, well, that's, um, that's, that just gives that decision more rigor, right? More options, better, better decisions. So that would be the first thing I'd say is it's just a great example. Without any skill or technique or model that you might approach, just by recognizing you're in a river of thinking, spending a little bit of time going, what could be another option would have a huge impact. Um, but then, and then if we are, um, I'll try and keep my powder dry because I'm sure some of the other questions, like how do we then get out of those rivers of thinking? I might keep that for some of the later questions that you've given me a bit of insight into. Um, so, but what I would say about this, what I would just say when it comes to learning, I do a lot of learning as well. So I'll offer my perspective on, on that. There's a couple of things here. Firstly, you know, we've all learned 
the, the, the we've all probably had those examples where we have been able to deliver absolute rational information here's the information here's the data that says why this is important and why we do this and blah 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 when especially if we're trying to educate people in whatever world we're in um and i think it's just i and time and again i'm always then reminded by the lack of people's action so i present a data and don't see pe a data point and see people not acting on it and i'm like are you crazy the data speaks for itself and it's just a great reminder right that unless people are emotionally engaged as well as rationally bought in they are rarely compelled to take action and i think sometimes particularly in this world where everybody wants you know the data the backup the you know give me the citation or you know all of that they want that evidence that i think we're sometimes as tutors or just presenters in general perhaps we may have just forgotten that that need to get people emotionally engaged um as well there was a brilliant um uh, um, Portuguese-American neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio who did quite a lot of research into, into this area of emotional engagement. And he did a study with, on people that had had um, uh, accidents that had caused brain damage in the part of their brain that affected emotion. And these people, and the, some of the tests he did was like to get them to, ex to, to kind of tell him what they should wear today based on the weather or what they should eat, you know, based on their diet or their goals. And they would be able to rationally explain their, what they should wear, right? It's raining outside, I should wear this. But then when he then asked them to go and then make the decision, go and, go and get dressed, they were physically in, unable to make that, that, that decision. So if we think that emotion doesn't play a part in, um, in communication, and I think that's education as well, then, um, then, um, then we're fooling ourselves. So I think that would be one thing is like, if I'm thinking about how might I challenge the way that I'm approaching imparting information, I might start there. Where can I get people emotionally engaged? How can I? And I think if someone said, well, how do I do that? First thing, I, I just go get them to feel it, get them to experience it and and do it. And especially the fail, if you like, you know, like we kind of we place more emphasis on loss than we do gain. So rather than getting people to do something and do it well, get them to maybe do it and it be not go so well and so that we really we really feel it but i think there's a bit there so how do we get people emotionally excited um another top tip would be uh, i've really learned to try and change the way i approach whenever i'm putting together information slides uh, a class a coaching session whatever it is i i, I no longer frame it as i'm you know putting together information i'm i always think to myself i'm putting together stimulus uh, you know, and it's just a re that language just reframes what I'm doing is presenting stimulus that hopefully provokes people to think differently. And in my case, hopefully provokes them out of their river of thinking. So this this is not me giving a presentation of information. This is me hopefully throwing out some provocative stimulus that might just trigger a few new, a few new thoughts for people out of their river of thinking. So, and I always think that's quite a good thing if you're a tutor or an educator or a coach as well. Like, how do you not telling people how to do it? Present the stimulus, and then and then the mighty question is then, what, so what? What what does this mean? What am I going to do with that? And one last thing I'd say on this on this one maybe about learning and or just in general. And again, I'm sure some of this I I could repeat time and again on some of the other situations you give me. Um, so this one will probably be the longest, um, but it's, um, I always ask people, where are you when you do your best thinking, you know, and, and, and I suppose, let, let me push it a bit more. Where are you when you have your best ideas? Where are you, Tom? You can tell me. Where am I? When I do my best thinking, um, really in the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a car journey. Um, 
don't know what it is about it, but I know that when I'm there, I kind of feel like I can just be on autopilot driving and it frees up the part of my brain. So the DVLA are like, you know, <laughs> someone on the DVLA listening to this kind of going, right, I think this person needs a retest. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, driving is, unfortunately, it's a subconscious, a semi-conscious task, autopilot task. We do it without having to give it our conscious thought, the same as washing up. You know, Bill Gates claims to do the washing up every night because it's 20 minutes that his mind can wander. You know, people talk about cookery and the gardening as being their creative releases. So, so anything that allows your mind to wander, but also people say physical, you know, when I'm running, walking, you know, pushing the kids on the swings. So physical motion as well. And some people say, you know, when I'm on the sofa asleep or when I'm totally relaxed or least wanting to think about it. And then others do say when I'm in the company of others, just kicking things around as well. But no one has ever said to me in front of my computer, with the face of doom when I'm paid to solve that problem and I've got a big deadline or pressure around it. Um, and there's a reason for that, right? And, the, you know, I won't go into, I mean, to that, there's far more credible people that can speak to the brain science around here, but that isn't a coincidence. That is to do with the state of our brain. I, and, you know, you probably see the spectrum that we've created here. The more relaxed our brain is, the more actually it is, allow, it is allowed in, allowing itself to get out of its rivers of thinking and make fresh connections between stuff that's already in our head. Steve Jobs said, there's no such thing as new ideas, just re fresh connections between all what already exists. Um, and that makes absolute sense, right? So how do we, when we talk about, when people always talk about, I often get asked to talk about learning environments. And I think mainly because people think of Google's physical space as being quite cool from what they've seen on sort of, you know, in the press or TV or online and stuff like that, but actually got nothing to do with the space. Uh, you know, or, or or the space itself, it's got to do with the principle that's behind it. Are we creating space and time for people to one, be relaxed and also like, and, and feel themselves. Um, that sounds a bit dodgy, you know, but feel like they're, you know, their, 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 their relaxed self, shall we say, you know, their weekend self versus in this kind of work mode. And also as well, if, if there are these moments, which some, some of them we can't engineer, you know, I'm just about to fall asleep. I'm relaxing in front of the telly, you know, things like that. I'm in the shower, like something we can't engineer. So actually, how do we just allow enough time for more of them to happen? So if we are imparting information, here's something I want you to think about. We're going to think about doing it this way. Come back to me in a week. That's a week's worth of time that people have got to let stuff just stay around in their in their head and come back. You know, um, a guy called Stephen Johnson, who wrote a book, Where the Good Ideas Come From, he called it the slow hunch. And it's a great, I love that way. Just, just, you know, it's not, I need the answer now, which is again, what we're into. So just to recognize that the more time we can allow our brains to be in, to gestate around something, the more it will naturally get out of its river of thinking and make new, new connections. But when we do want to deliberately focus on something, a class, um, a, a coaching session, a mentoring conversation, a, a, um, a session planning meeting, whatever it is, how do we make it just feel relaxed and like, especially in that expansive bit, right that options and possibility that should feel like a group of friends kicking some stuff about you know without that pressure and then we jump into the analysis decision right we've got loads of options right let's make some decisions now i mean because of the nature of what we're talking about i feel like we could just go and open so many doors yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. particular scenario and situation there was, there was several things you said one which i kind of wrote down and underlined twice that really stood out because it connected with something I was talking to someone about the other day when when people are designing learning and maybe in the past 
I'm, I've been guilty of this, others, others have as well, I'm sure, where you, you think about the content that you want, want to deliver first and the learning experience second. Um, and I was watching a video and someone was talking around designing in moments, which is probably very similar to your design, designing in that, that stimuli, in, into your workshop, because the, the peaks and the troughs are the things which become really memorable rather than just that plain flat road. Yeah, I love that. Listen, I, my closest thing to that is designing. I spend a lot of time advising people on conference design or event design. Um, and um, and you see it like they've spent 90% of the time worrying like, on the content. And it needs to be 50-50, you know, design for content and design for people. And actually the people bit, if you, it's, quite, it's, it's a lot easier because when people are unfortunately quite predictable, um, but we're certainly not creatures of logic, we're creatures of emotion. So that comes back to that point. But how do we ensure, I see it all the time, people have focused loads on, oh, we've got really good content, really good speakers. But again, it becomes then just a passive receive mode, back to that thing around shifting from information to stimulus. So how, you know, whenever I'm working on conference design or event design, I always go, right, well, I'll, firstly, I can guarantee, I do a crystal ball. I go, you don't even got to show me the content. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is going to be half the content, right? But that's hard for people to accept because it's, you know, we're in a river of thinking. But, you know, but if you take away some of the content and allow space for the so what, bit of gestation, and that gestation could be go and have a coffee, 10 minutes, come back and reflect and then come back and I want you to think of one thing you can take from this and how you might take it. Just allowing that 10 minutes of one, a more relaxed state when we're just making a, cu a cuppa and, and a bit of time, not under pressure. Tom, what's the answer now? What's the one thing you're taking away from what I've just bombarded you with for 60 minutes or whatever? You know, just allowing a bit of space where someone can just go, brain slows down, starts to make a connection. The quality of the conversation back after is, is brilliant right you know is much better so i think there's yeah design for content design for, but design for the person or the people that you're trying to design for yeah amazing amazing um cool Kurt, let's move on to our second yeah. one um there's so much value in that first one by the way okay great um, all right i'm so, glad so so this one it the picture of the scene lead coach working with their, their coaching team so in this this situation we've got a handball coach who's really passionate um, about getting more children into their into their sport, um, the coaching team have come with a long list of ideas, but the lead coach is finding it quite difficult um, to help the coaches kind of clear, have have really clear thinking and find some focus. And he's worried about saying no to some of their ideas and, and dampening their enthusiasm. So, yeah. questioning this, how do you how do you kind of empower people to have really good ideas, but don't don't stifle that by by shutting them down too soon? Yeah. So listen, so if like that last answer I gave was, or the last topic we touched on, there's a lot of technique there, a lot of principles around sort of technique, how you might approach it, the process you should follow. My immediate reaction to what the, to this situation is behavior, 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 behavior. Um, you know, there's a, a, I use a playful expression, which is a ripoff of um, Peter Drucker's um, culture eats, um, culture each strategy for breakfast i always talk about behavior each process for breakfast you know in any given situation particularly when you want new thinking but the behavior the, the mindset in which people show up and behave with each other is far more important than any process that we um that we have and there's so many behavioral watchouts with that scenario that you've um that you've given me firstly like so um we have an inbuilt negativity bias. 
okay as human beings in the world it keeps us alive go back to cave people days um it kept us alive we we are hardwired to seek the threat in something before we seek the opportunity and again that that and it still is to this day largely a good a good thing and where fight or flight or freeze mode you know come from and again I'm, there's more experts in that space but so we so you know it kept us alive we'd see something new that we hadn't experienced before you know is this could this hurt me you know do i eat it or do i get eaten by it probably about then now fast forward to this day um you know we the, our brains have only evolved 10 percent in that time whereas the world has evolved dramatically and by and large you know we don't need to think like that all the time now but we still do so every time someone comes with a new idea or a new piece of thinking that we haven't previously um, um, thought of ourselves or been exposed to shall we say our immediate reaction isn't what could be good about this it's how might this hurt me or hurt us and so therefore the translation to modern modern world what's bad about this not what's good about it and so that so I think if you're in any situation as a leader or someone leading the situation where you've got people coming to you with thoughts and ideas, that's your first check for yourself is what mode of thinking do I need? Because my default will be to try and kill every piece of thinking that's come come to me here. And and don't get me wrong, judgment is vital. I've talked about those two modes of thinking without judgment. If, if all you do is just go, oh, yeah, bring me loads of ideas. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Like it just becomes a big loving and nothing happens, you know, as a result of it. And so people have fun and feel like you're, you know, so I'm not saying judgment is bad. Judgment is vital for creativity, but judgment at the wrong time, particularly when ideas are young, um, they're just not strong enough to survive. Um, if I gave you three garden seeds now, Tom, and they are identical, but I tell you that one of them is a rose, bush and the others are just thorns and weeds the other two what's the only way you get the rose right after it right plant them all plant them all you have to treat them all the same at first you have to treat them all the same because you don't know both get the all three of them get the same sun get the same attention get the same water not forever only until they start to sprout and you know which one the rose is then you discard the other two don't spend any more time on that then all of your effort comes to make that rose as good as it can be it's the same with new ideas and new thinking at first, you have to treat them the same. And if you are, and and the, don't get me wrong, listen, someone comes to you with a 13-page proposal about an idea, that probably has enough um, information in it that you could then jump to judgment mode and judge. But the reality is, the situation you've described, it, we're all familiar with, where someone's going, oh, I've got a thought about this, or what if we did this? And it's just a one line, a one word. That's a seed, that's not an idea. So we have, so I think the only way in which we can fairly judge, so that's the point here. Sorry, I'm waffling a little bit. Judgment is, is, is vital. Fair judgment is what we're asking for. And you can only judge fairly if you, if every idea, one has been given its best chance of succeeding, i.e. can we nurture it a little bit? Oh, okay, right, that's interesting. Um, how do we make that idea even better? Tom, no, that's really interesting, you just shared that. My, I'm, I, I, I'm, my brain is taking me to a place where this might might be a problem. Like, what can we do? I'm not seeing that as a barrier, but actually, what can we do to overcome that problem? Is there a way to overcome it? So there's a real difference in that just going, I've pointed out an absolute weakness in your idea, which which is valid, right? But my my mindset is I want to nurture it 
to see if we can overcome that problem versus there's a problem with that thought that means it's awful move on next one right you know and so on so i think as the lead in any situation and not just the lead everyone needs to if you are going to invest time in exploring new ideas or new options you have to be in nurturing mode check consciously checking your negativity bias every time before we jump to analysis judgment um, and decision mode so you know i so i think there's that nurturing or just let's just call it positivity how do i just recognize that i need to turn on a bit of positivity around this thinking for a little bit of time just to see if it's got if it's got value before I jump to, to judgment. And remember, all of your judgment comes from your rivers of thinking as well. So it's just about recognizing um, that too. Okay, for, for, for the pragmatists listening to the call then, and um, with ideas growing and, and starting to blossom, how, how, what are the indicators that we've given it enough time before we start to make some decisions? That's a really, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Um, uh, um, it's an art, not a science. So there is like, so it's a gut feel. I always ask myself, do we all have, so there's a couple of things. Firstly, do we just feel like we've given it a bit of love, right? Have we just given it a bit and genuine, not just like, oh, let's count for 30 seconds and then we'll move on. Like genuinely being like not being wedded to the outcome, right? So if I talk about positivity as a behavior, another behavior that's vital is um is what um is, is called i call it playfulness and i've stolen that from um the folks at what if an innovation consultancy that i used to work for and we use it at google too but and playfulness is not about like about or or it's actually just about suspending your judgment and not being wedded to the outcome just being comfortable in the moment so if you are going to be positive around someone's thinking you need to do it without being wedded to the outcome. Otherwise, your brain will never allow you to go to, to go there. So that's so that's another behavior that's needed. Um, so so there's a bit of that. Have we given it a chance? And then the, the other one, which is a bit more of a, um, a bit more a process, I suppose. Do we all have a similar picture in our head of what that idea looks like? Because most of the time, the reasons why ideas are fairly are unfairly judged is because they are just based on different interpretations of them. If I said to you, Tom, chocolate ice cream, there's a good chance that your and my definition, your picture in our head right now of what that chocolate ice cream is gonna look like is quite different, right? We, it might be in a tub, it might be in a cone, it might be in a wafer cone or a sugar snap cone. It might be two scoops, three scoops, chocolate sprinkles on top, flake in there, what, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so just saying chocolate ice cream isn't enough. We need to go, right, okay, tell me a bit more, right? And this is where positivity comes in. So I come to you and go, Tom, I'm thinking about chocolate ice cream, right? You're like, okay, tell me a bit more. So me then just giving you, right, so I think, well, actually, we, we were going to go for a walk, so we need it to be practical. So I thought, like, let's put it in a cone, um, et cetera. And, um, you know, is it two, two scoops? Well, we're both trying to watch our weight. You know, it's one scoop. Let's, you know, so, so there's a bit of that. But so, so I think if you're being pragmatic about it, you can only fairly judge when everybody is judging the same thing. Now, what this doesn't need is a full cost analysis and calorie breakdown of the chocolate ice cream or what color the, um, the, the plastic spoon is, right? It doesn't need that much information, but what it does need is like, do we each share the same vision of the DNA? Because most of the time, that's why ideas are fairly judged because you don't actually understand where I'm coming from here at all. So I think that would be the two, two steps. One, just, uh, do we feel like we've given this a bit of attention, a bit of love? And it, and in most cases, it is just 
<laughs> anything more than just immediate judgment, which is our default, our negativity bias, would be a start, right? So just going, have I not immediately dismissed this? Okay, that's great. And then second, have we built a common picture in our head of what this might look like so that when we do come to judge, we're judging the same thing, right? So there, that would be the answer to that. Do you know the, the thing that struck me when you were talking then, and I apologize if this is a naive question, but is, is part of that nurture mode about asking better questions? Uh, you, you know, it's not no naivety is amazing, by the way. I think it's the, one of the highest forms of expertise. Um, we might talk about that a bit later, but um, uh, we, um, but uh, yeah, it's 100% asking better questions, but but the most sneaky killing ninjas of ideas are ones that use questions to do it. So I basically, right, so, te so I might come to you, Tom, I'm just thinking about how we might just engage these these tutors in a different way i've got this start of thought and i share it with you it's so nice it's so what's the word it's so fragile it's just a thought and then you start going well, well okay but that needs paper how are we going to ensure they all have paper and pen in front of them when we're doing this over zoom you know and like and and you start so you might start asking questions that actually have just become an obstacle course that it could never get through Right. And so so I think good question asking, but but you can ask ask questions in two very different ways. One is to genuinely be curious and try and understand better. And one is to and another totally different way is to basically it's a way of you. It's just a reframe of you telling me why it's a bad idea in the question form. So I, back to again, back to behavior, the act, the physical process of asking questions is not what's important here. It's the mindset you are around it. However, questions are a really good way. Tell me more, Kurt, like that sounds really interesting. I'm not sure I've quite got it in my head. Can you give me a bit more information? But the other thing to recognize is that positivity is, is not just stepping back and allowing this person to share with me their thinking. Positivity is actually proactively stepping in and, and helping to nurture the idea. Two brains are better than one. You've got a vault of past experience, knowledge, rivers of thinking, and so have I. Two of them come together. We've doubled the capacity for fresh connections to be made. So if all you're doing sitting there is guiding my thought, that's 50, we're wasting 50% of the brain power that could be used here. So, and I think a lot of people think that this is a good way of doing it, especially more senior. If I'm more senior or, or I'm leading the team, I'll ask them questions. But no, get involved. Make it partly your idea. Because naturally, then you become a bit more, you allow yourself to be a bit more vulnerable and you'll naturally be more nurturing. So questions to be curious and get involved. Oh, right, I get it now. I get it now, Tom. Right. I can I can jump into that now. And what about if we did this instead of that? And that might be a way of doing that. That's a, like that. That's the approach. That's the mindset and behavior that's needed around this. Got it. Got it. So it's, it's questions, I guess, aiming to help. That's your curiosity. Yeah. Behind. And let me just and let me just say one more thing on this behavior piece. So we've done we've done positivity, playfulness needed, but also the power of signaling or signposting. Right. So so we can all be more positive and more playful immediately. If you value what if you buy into what I've just said, we can all do it. But how do we get other people to do it? And, and it's as simple as just signposting. Tell them. You know, it could be as like, 
how often do we go right i really want this to be a really open conversation where we kick about some thoughts about judgment or people feeling silly or whatever and then we do nothing to frame the conversation that that is what we want so then yeah. guess what everyone shows up in negativity mode you know um bias all of that stuff so signposting is just about being explicit with how you need people to be particularly if you need them to be in a way that isn't their natural state and positivity and nurturing is not our natural state negativity bias and judgment is so just tell them but also it's not just about telling them you know how do you invite them to the conversation the title of the email or the invite can be a nice way of signposting that this is a different conversation um actually tom um why don't we do it over the phone and we can both be walking around the park um whilst we're doing it that so your environment can help to signpost the type of conversation you want um as well so so yeah so nurture nurturing positivity and playfulness all behaviors that we can immediately control but if we want other people to do it we need to signpost um to them and to ourselves as well that that signposting piece the language of users just made my brain pop in lots of different directions just because i guess i'm looking back on the experiences i've had meetings or, or chats with coaches or whatever it might be and then all of a sudden i can say ah this way if i just set that conversation up slightly differently maybe the result would have been a bit different and maybe maybe for the people listening to kind of reflect on um i guess those moments as well where where you sat you know really try to share something but it's just not landed and perhaps with all these things that you've talked about here Kurt, that could have an impact on on the way stuff lands um uh, fantastic fantastic cool okay third third scenario um this is this is pitched around a senior coach developer working with other people other coach developers who go and support coaches okay. so, um, supporting a large cohort of coach developers to support the development of some football coaches all across the country. So it's a national program. Um, a lot of coach developers within this, this cohort are incredibly experienced, but they find it uncomfortable to go and try new things. Um, especially in, in kind of the environment a lot of us are working in now, adapting to support coaches virtually. Um, so I guess the question is how, how do you how do you shift people and help them feel more comfortable at, at trying to that, that they're not it doesn't come naturally perhaps yeah yeah so so i think there's two ways of looking at that or listening at that um two so let me give you the two different ways in which i could interpret that that scenario one is they are being told to change their approach let's take that one very quickly because there's another one which is probably more fun but 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 so you know i'm a senior coach developer and i want my team or the people that I'm working with to go and try some new things. Um, we've got to reckon that, right, you're basically asking them to change their approach. And change is hard. And I don't think anyone would discount that. But one thing I've learned over the last few years um, through experience, but also through um, some, some education of some brilliant work that's out there, um, the reason why change is hard is often because of our bias to not change. Not because the actual act of changing is hard, but the act of 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 not staying as we are is really hard. Um, so there was a brilliant uh, piece of research done by Harvard into quite a serious thing, right? So basically, they they looked at people who had had recent um, operations to save lives, right? Often down to lifestyle or diet and things like this, right? So heart conditions and and so on, and. And then, of course, people were then 
told they need to change. Um, so the context is, you know, if I don't change, if you don't change, your life could be at threat. Only 13%, one, three percent of people went on to change. So what that tells me is that when we think about trying to get people to change, we hugely underestimate the complexity or, or our pe people's own internal complexity that's at the play there. So, so that was just one way that I looked at this. And I don't, again, there's one of those other ones that could be a podcast on its own all about um, change. But I think sometimes we go, well, let's put some structures in place that will help you to change. Well, actually, no, no, what we need is first and foremost is structures in place that help us to disconnect from the from the status quo, because there is something that's powering that. You know, we underestimate our own complexity and um, and our external commitments to change are never, never as powerful as our subconscious commitments to not change because they run deep and psychological. So so I think one, one thing I would say to anyone that's in a, a position of leadership where you're working with people and you want them to change their behavior or change something, just recognize that we have to explore, we have to allow them and us the space to explore why we might not change, not all the emphasis on, well, of course you're gonna do this and let me train you so that you can do this, this and this better. That's one way of looking at it. So I, that's what I interpret that, that scenario you give me that senior person telling people to go and try something different. Okay, there will be stuff that is stopping them from doing that that's deep and that needs to be explored. The other, the other um, angle, uh, which is one that I, I'm, I'm sort of guessing, especially in the context of me being on this, on, on, on this podcast, is more like, right, we've got some new ideas. How do we go and give them a go, you know, and how do we try some stuff? Um, this is all about creating safe to fail, right? You know, how do we create safe to fail situations? And firstly, what I would say first and foremost is how do we as a team create a culture where where we embrace failure as being part of our mix? So I always ask teams, you know, whenever I'm working in, in the world of innovation or creativity, I'll always the first thing I'll ask is where does failure live around here? And actually someone challenged me on that. And failure is a defeatist word. It like means it's always going to fail. But the, the reality is it will. But let's soften it a little bit. Where does risk of failure live around here? And it's and a lot of people can't answer that. You know, in your team, in this organization, in ourselves, can't answer it. Best question I, best answer I ever had was from Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach. He said Mondays. Failure lives on a Monday. And it was a, you know, it was a, a playful answer. But his point was, I don't want people, I definitely don't want people failing on game day. And I don't want people failing as we build up to game day, as we start to, you know, drill our at speed, our, uh, you know, how we're going to try and do things or or the options that we're going with. Um, but if we can't try new stuff and be happy for that to not work on a Monday, i.e. the furthest away from game day that we can be, then we'll never try it. And that was the point that I think he was getting at. And, um, and that stuck with me. You know, so how do we create safe to fail as far away from the operation critical, shall we call it, um, end? So in sport, you know, I always go, excuse the sort of flippant answer to this that i always go that's your under 10s if you're in a pathway you know if you can't try new things under in the under 10s like experiment with some new stuff then you'll never try it 
and, and the problem is I've, I've said that and I've had an under 10s coach going, well, we've got a league to win. And then, you know, my mind blows up at the thought that in an overall organisation that's about creating better growth and development for young, young, young kids, that the winning is everything at under 10s. I think there's something going on there as, um, as well. So, so that's one example, safe to fail, but you've got to have an innovation lab somewhere. And the point I'm, uh, or the sort of where I'm getting to with this is, most ideas, most ideas fail, by the way, right? That's, that's a good thing. If you're in a situation where you go, if, if someone, you know, it's a good question to ask, what percentage of your ideas fail or don't fail? And if anyone says more than 50%, they're actually not, they're not, they're not, they're, they're not being creative, they're not being expansive because they're not trying new stuff, right? We should embrace failure. But according to research, over 80% of ideas fail, not because they weren't executed well. And, but because the premise for the idea never existed in the first place. And that and that's the big confusion that I think a lot of us have when we, so situation of coach developers trying some new stuff, right? So we automatically, their minds, and I, you know, no, no shame in this, will go to execution, right? How do I do that? How do I do that? Versus actually first thing, and this almost could come back to that last um, scenario as well, where you've got a ton of new ideas before we even worry about executing them, how do we test if the premise for the idea is even valid? And the reason for that, for, for going there first, is it's cheaper and quicker. So actually, you've got, you're safe to fail because, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm just playing around with my thinking, not with the execution. Like the, so, um, so an example would be McDonald's, right? McDonald's are... Um, uh, about to launch a new product. Let's call it Mook Spaghetti. How, you know, how could we test whether there's some value in that idea? And most people's brains will go to, well, you know, just put it, you know, serve it in a few stores, you know, or give it out as free samples or things like that. Ask people, just do a research, stand outside. Would you be interested in, in Mook Spaghetti? So all of these things, and there's problems with that. One, anything where you're asking people what they would do versus there is, isn't an accurate reflection of people's actual behavior. Giving them away free when they haven't had to actually pay for it. Like people are more, I'll, I'll take a free sample and I'll allow it to taste worse than if I've got to pay for it. Um, but also as well, just think of the investment. Even in one store, if you're setting up making spaghetti at scale, you've, got to, you've basically got to invent the product. Whereas actually we could learn whether people would even want the spaghetti without even making it just by sticking it on the menu and seeing who asked for it. Now, of course, you've got to be of that mindset where you're prepared to then go, sorry, if someone asked for it. Sorry, we've sold out. Um, and um, but guess what? You've learned if we made this, someone has asked for it. And then, you, and then you have your own metrics, right? So how many people need to ask for it to be, for it to be past that stage gate? Maybe you go, we need, um, you know, if, if, if a Big Mac sells a thousand units a day, maybe if a hundred people ask for this or 50, that will give us confidence. There might be something in that. It could still fail because we could make it and it tastes awful and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is I'm probably more likely to learn that very few people ask for it. And therefore, I haven't even spent any time making it. So I think bringing it back to a, um, your world, how do you test the premise of your thinking? Do, you know, we're thinking about doing a... Um, uh, putting on Pilates for player, for athletes whilst they're in camp. Like we could spend time and money 
getting a Pilates teacher, finding and hiring the room, mats and equipment and all that kind of stuff. Or we could just send everyone a WhatsApp message going Pilates at 2.30 on Tuesday. See you there if you're up for it and then see how many people show up. Now, of course, you've got a little bit of disappointment first time, but you then get a reflection, right? Was there value in my idea in the first place before I've even worried about executing it? And so that, that was all, that's always my default whenever I think about going and trying something new is how can I learn something fast, quick, fast and cheaply? Um, you know, make sure I'm building the right it before I even worry about building it right. Again, Kurt, so much in that that I think people can digest and really think about and consider how it applies to them and the stuff that they could play with and, and, and go and try. Um, just from some reflection for me, when, when we were, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, but when we were discussing this podcast and, and talking about where where we're going to go with it, and you mentioned around kind of where does that, that risk live or where does that failure live in, in a week? It got me thinking about some of the coaching that I do. And mate, I guess that, that example of Eddie Jones saying, well, Monday is that, that point furthest away from our game is where we're happiest to try stuff out. And it, it, it changed the way I plan practice, a plan session. So, now I'm thinking, are we at a stage of the week where we want to go and exploit stuff? Is it, are we about um, evolving what we do, maybe to kind of marry up with what to expect from the opposition, or is it about exploring? And then almost in that little triangle, I'm putting a little cross to say, well, I feel we're over here today. So it affords us more opportunity to do more Lovely. activity. So I think I think it's it's great how you can take that concept and then just tweak it to fit fit, the, fit your world. And also, what, what I quite like about what you just said as well is um, just allowing that space and allowing it to come back to previous points I've made, just allowing stuff to sit with you for a while. So if you're planning a, a session or something like that as well, um, I always like it's a lot easier to take a crazy piece of thinking and rein it in to be fit for purpose than it is to take the same old thinking and blow it, blow it out to something crazy. So so I always go like that start crazy what if we just did this next week what if we just did this and then and then sit with it and as each day comes it approaches go right okay well if i had did have to do that what might i do and then you slowly bring yourself so you you come back to something that's quite practical but you've just allowed your you've allowed yourself to sit with the thinking of it before i think just by default we go right let's go and do mode and um and that's and, and then we've forgotten about even worrying about the the idea and then and then what happens is it doesn't work and then we sit there and go, oh, my God, that's terrible and all this kind of stuff. Whereas the reality is we probably could have learned that it might not have worked before we invested so much time and effort. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Nice one. Thank you, Kirk. We've got two to go. Um, yeah. So the next one is is zoomed in around a head coach working with their team of athletes. Um, so the coach from a rugby team, uh, he's just won National Cup competition for the fifth season in a row. Uh, everyone obviously they're related they've worked really hard to get to this point um few tough mo moments for the season but they, they got there they won the cup again so what they're planning to do to take the summer off have a rest but when they approach next season approach it in exactly the same way because well what could go wrong <laughs> um i mean obviously you've written these to allow me to to react to them which is which is, which is good but i am um... So, so, you know, my reaction to that is, woo, woo, that uh, alarm bells, like get rid of these, get rid of them, get rid of these people. Now, now there might be people that would consider themselves in a similar situation to this and be, be going, what are you talking about? But the point is, we are never more at risk of being disrupted than when we are successful. Because guess what? Rivers of thinking 
not only are there, but they're being validated, right? So, oh, the way I've done it in the past works. Why would I change? So the appetite for even considering one more option is disappears even more, more so in this case. And then guess what? Somebody else does look at your, your world from a different angle and you're disrupted. So let me come out of sport for a second. Let's go to the corporate world. You know, this is why disruption happens in industries and sectors. And by the way, it's happened since the dawn of time. Disruption always happens. And it's a good thing if you look at it in general, because it means we're innovating with the world is progressing and things like that. But it is never the most successful or incumbent that does the disruption. Um, because we are stuck in a river of thinking of doing things the same way. And then maybe we get into this, oh, you know, we'll just tweak. We actually, what we do is we tweak what we already do really well to do it a little bit better. Yeah. And that's fine. But, um, you know, you might call that marginal gains and all of that kind of stuff, which I know is big in, in, in sport. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's incremental innovation. But if somebody comes and totally changes the value proposition then you are blown, you know, they, they, they have the ability to wipe you out. So, you know, let's take, um, you know, let, let, let's take uh, Netflix. You know, if you remember Netflix or Lo and Love Film was our version here in the UK, we, um, uh, when it first, when they first started, they were DVD rentals, right? So you get them in the post. So at the time, you know, like, you know, and they, and they overnight, they wiped out Blockbuster. Yeah, because Blockbuster like going, we're brilliant, like, you know, we're doing really well, like, and, and all of their innovation was in like, well, how do we make sure, get allow people to have, you know, buy their soft drinks and their Hagen-Dazs and ensure that we have more copies of the products on, on shelf and all of this kind of stuff. You know, remember Blockbuster, high, expensive high street locations, um, they made all of their profit from late fees. Talk about that as being something that was, you know, it's easy to look back, isn't it, and go, like it was obvious it was going to get disrupted. Your business model succeeds when your customers fail. Like, like, but that was how it was. So all of a sudden, then a, a DVD rental system where you don't even have to leave the house. Like, it just totally changes the value value um, um, proposition. So I think that's my my reaction to that is it's dangerous. Success is dangerous because it breeds satisfaction in the status quo, and that's when you need to disrupt yourself. Then. Um, even more. So the example I give, I, I've been really lucky to work a bit with Adidas, and um, and I always use an example that I throw back at them quite playfully. Um, so you know they want they pride themselves on making the lightest soccer boot in the world. Um, a few years ago, and um, just before Euro sixteen, I think it was, it was um, it was a hundred grams was the lightest boot they had. But then they were just about to launch the new one, ninety grams. And my push to them was. How many people don't buy your soccer boots because they weigh 100 grams, but are going to go run into the stores because they weigh 90? Now, in isolation, there's an immediate response to that. It doesn't matter. We're constantly pushing the envelope. We're trying new things. And I get that. But my push to them is, OK, so you're, you're making your boots a little bit lighter each time. What about if over here on this other side, a company is creating a 3D printer that might cost a thousand bucks, but it comes with a lifetime supply of licenses to print your boots in whatever design or colorway you want every single weekend. You know, um, and by the way, Adidas's customers are amateur athletes, right? They're not, you know, that's their mass. Um, all of a sudden, I've changed the value proposition. What, as a parent, let's say I'm a parent, what would I allow soccer boots to weigh? Probably like loads more. We got to about 300 grams as a debate, right? So, so that's, that's the watch out here is like focus on this, doing this thing. We already do well a little bit better. There is somebody might just come up with an idea that offers a totally different value proposition to the end user, the situation, whatever it is. 
that totally changes people's interpretation of what value looks like. And you see it a lot in sport, right? It's, you know, we always talk about like coaches who are of their time, right? Because the game has evolved or something and perhaps they haven't been able to, um, uh, to do it because somebody disrupts it and does it and does it totally different. So that's the big, um, that would be my big thing um, there would just be, if you're doing, almost scrutinize the things you do well more than the things you don't do so well because your brain will naturally find new ways of doing things you don't do well but your brain doesn't want to go looking for stuff you don't you do well yeah, yeah. i was listening to something a few weeks ago and they were talking about the value of dissecting success and how, how sometimes we spend a lot of time dissecting the mistakes we make rather than unpicking what's the value behind the things we do really well yeah yeah, I, I, and what was so I would dissect it to then go right. How can we then disrupt it? So, so, so let's say this this team won the you know then so we, you've given me the context of rugby. So, so one of the things they might do really well. Let's say they got a really strong pack, right? Really strong forward, and they're just brilliant in the, in the scrummage and in the sort of you know the, the, that that part of the game. So when I would break it down, I might then start offering huge provocation that forces us to think about it. What if we had to scrummage with only three people against their eight? What would, might we do differently? Now, immediately, again, playful, be playful. Don't be wedded to the outcome, folks, because you're all sitting there going, that's illegal. It wouldn't be a scrum. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. Well, what if? What if we had to do that? What if we had to beat every opposition next year 100 points to nil? What would we do differently? Now, um, and again, sit with that. You might then start exploring, well, 100 points to nil. We have to win every game of rugby 100 points to nil. Firstly, we have to be really good at scoring tries because points probably don't help enough. Um, blah, blah, blah. Okay, right. Oh, that, yeah. And by the way, we don't have to win every game 100 nil. But if we frame the situation, it's actually a Google technique called 10x thinking. Blow the problem up to such a degree that you have to look at it from a different river of thinking. You can't look at it, how do I win a rugby game, which all of your rivers of thinking are by one point, doing it in traditional ways. If I reframe the situation, then I'm forced to think about it a, um, a bit differently. Um, again, I think I think just the, the approach of just reinventing something and, and, and thinking about how other people might do it if we don't change. It's just, again, it, it's blowing the circuits in my brain to think that we, maybe personally you look at the tiny things you can improve and and i guess a lot of that is by staying the same in in, in many respects staying in that river of thinking and just by moving across it, it changes it changes the landscape we could um so there, there's an expression in the in the innovation world you go to silicon valley and they always go if you if if you um you will never disrupt from within and they talk about the corporate antibodies will always stop it from happening. So let's try and bring it out of business world to, to, to more general. But it's the principle still applies. You know, successful team, you will never disrupt that team from within because the, the preservation antibodies will, will just stop new stuff happening. So actually, there's a rule of thinking that sort of says, go and get another team to disrupt this team. Start investing. So and this is where the principles of the sport that actually does really well. By the way, actually, you know, I should have said this up front. We everything I share, I've seen brilliant examples of it, particularly in sport. This is just how do we all do it more often on demand by understanding what what, what the principles are. But the principle of red teaming, right? That's not it's a military term that sport uses a lot. Go and ask, you know, we've got a strategy and then we try and get look at it from a different angle or we bring in fresh people that try and 
play against that strategy to unlock weakness. So when we talk about that kind of dissecting success, if you're not sitting there dissecting your success and disrupting it, that's what everyone else is doing. Everyone else is going, well, they do that. So what if we just did that a different um, a different way? So, so the, that's the point. You almost act, need to create an environment where you can be your own opposition and apply a bit to, um, and, and, and look at it that, that way as well. Love it. Awesome. Thank you, Kurt. Okay, final scenario before after, before you can have a rest after sharing. <laughs> um, this this scenario is around a mentor working with a coach. Okay. Um, so one on one on one mentoring mentor and a boxing coach um, who's supporting uh, several athletes who are on an Olympic pathway. So the coach's experience uh, but finds it difficult to take on board uh, the views of the athletes and listen to them, kind of it, it, and what they want from training. Um, I guess his approach is his way or the highway. Um, so how could the mentor impact on the coach in a, in a really positive way? Yeah, so um, so there's a couple of things here, so a few things. Um, firstly, I think every answer or tip or principle I've shared applies to this. It's quite a nice one to end on, right? Because all of that, right? So we all need to, whether you're the mentor or, or the coach yourself, understand the principle of um of being more nurturing more positive not being wedded to the outcome all that behavioral stuff comes into um uh, comes into play um you know using techniques to disrupt the situation so if i was the mentor i might um i might offer some real provocative ideas um that, that really challenge the thinking of the coach but in a safe to fail environment right so just give me this like let's say i'm one of your boxers and i talk about this um um and this is what i've got to say to you what what would your reaction be to that so i might almost try and help develop the coaches this seems to me i look at this and go one of the biggest challenges here is probably the coach just hasn't built the practice in new thinking right they're actually quite fixed right they're probably really good at analysis judgment decision making they've been brilliant based on their rivers of thinking so how can I, as the mentor, just actually act as being their personal trainer? It's my job to flex that muscle of options and possibility um, um, in them. So I might consider that that a bit. Um, I think the biggest challenge, you know, the, the thing I'd look at here is just back to the rivers of thinking piece. The coach has deep rivers of thinking. Why are they struggling to 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 accept the, the or to recognize the value in some of the perspectives of the athletes? Well, again. Maybe it's their resistance to change. Come back to that, and we could go down that that hole. Um, but they, um, but they probably just, you know, they have deep rivers of thinking that this is how I do things, and this is how things are done, and probably with success. So, but if you buy into what I've just said about rivers of thinking, well, it's just about recognizing it's just stimulus. It's almost reverse engineering that stimulus, please. If I was mentoring this coach, I might just go, "What's wrong with having more stimulus to play with?" you know, more ingredients to help you make the decisions. Now, all of the, you need to be open to making, to looking at things different. So I, you know, I, I, I loved an expression I picked up a few years ago about having a raging curiosity. Like, so, and I think some of the best operators in, in whatever walks of life are those that genuinely are playful, i.e. not wedded to the outcome, and they have a raging curiosity. I don't think I, I need to be better at this, but lean into things and genuinely want to understand more. Why wouldn't you want to understand why one of your athletes is sharing that 
that that that with you what's going on for them that they are coming to you and if you are immediately going that that is totally wrong how they're thinking well clearly they didn't want to come to you with a silly thought or a silly idea or a perspective so what is it that's driving them to feel like they need to or want to share this um, um this with me you know with me so i think that would be one thing that i'd be thinking about as the mentor is how can i try and build their curiosity and this all it is doing is fueling you with more options. How can you be worse off with more options or more perspectives? Um, of course, there, there's choice paralysis, but you know, when far, far from that, from being inundated to that, to that point. So, I think it's like how trying to change some of that mindset, and then also just recognizing that somebody else who has a different perspective. Is, is hugely powerful. Um, there's a book, Matthew Syed, um, you know, very, very familiar in the sport world. And his latest book, um, um, uh, is it Rebel Ideas? Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and he talks about that, you know, he uses really nice language that I've stolen about the, um, the watch out of being in an echo chamber. You know, so if all you're doing is surrounding yourself with the same, your voice and other people who all look at this in the same way. So I guarantee that coach probably sits there having coffee every day with other coaches and they're talking about how to do things. Well, the watch out is that you're, you just become an echo chamber. All of their perspectives just become a mirror of yours because their rivers of thinking are probably similar because they've had similar experiences. So why wouldn't you want to get out of your echo chamber and get as many different perspectives as I can? So, you know, I'd be sitting there going as the coach, going, I want to understand exactly what all of my athletes are thinking and their ideas. I also want to understand what their parents or their partners are thinking to get a different um, perspective. I also, you know, I want to understand how somebody in a totally different world who faces a similar challenge to our athletes. So let's say it's about, you know, I don't know, let's say it's courage. Like, you know, athletes are struggling with courage. Or actually, let's call it even something really practical. They're struggling with routine and discipline. Right, okay, well, what other worlds was there discipline? Teachers. Can I go and speak to some teachers? It might just give me a perspective on, on, on discipline with, um, uh, with, their, with their students. I've got fresh perspective. So back to this curiosity point, it, you know, we've got we've to allow, allow ourselves to see the value in other perspective and, and also just recognise that it is just more ingredients that help us to create the right recipe. Amazing. I, I think the language you used about around echo chambers is is really powerful. I think if you looked at my my Twitter timeline, you'd think everybody in the world thinks exactly the same as I do. Uh, because that's, I guess that maybe that's a bias or a, a human nature to an extent to to connect with people who see the world in a similar way. Which maybe then, correct me if I'm wrong, goes back to the rivers of thinking. We look at people who've got similar similar rivers and a similar path to it one one thing for me Kurt, just to kind of join this to a close i think the, there's so much quality in what you shared and that everybody listening will have something different they'll be able to take away and digest and think about um so first of all a huge thank you for me for, for everything you've shared and, and spoken about today i guess final question for me just to leave with in terms of the way that you apply some of this in your own world how, how, going back to that kind of disruption piece, how do you disrupt yourself? What do you do to kind of keep yourself looking at things from a different perspective and, and not missing anything? Um, so, I, you know, by the way, it's all, I, I think I'm, I, 
one of, I think I'm almost like an ideal candidate. I almost feel like every time I speak or I'm running a program or designing something, I'm designing it for me because I'm the ideal person because I'm not naturally, you know, all of these things I'm, I'm kind of hardwired. I am an example when I talk about being rivers of thinking, I'm in deep rivers of thinking all the time. I'm risk averse. All, you know, all of this stuff is me. Um, so, so I think I said it's not, you know, firstly, it's not about, oh, you know, we're just trying to find these unique people that, you know, see the world differently. It's, it's not about that. It applies to us all. Um, I'm, I really force myself to go and get fresh perspective because I could, I'm very, I could be very lazy and just going one, either I know, I know enough or I know, or I'm surrounded by people that will give me that. So especially, you know, in the last year we've had where those casual collisions where you naturally get fresh perspectives, meeting a coffee shop or in the queue or passing someone in the office and, you know, or whatever, Oh, you know, what are you up to? Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. So, you know, in terms of like filling my head with new rivers of thinking, I, I'm not, we're not getting that. So I've become very deliberate about proactively looking to seek um, people with a different perspective. I'm working on something who might look at this a bit differently and going and getting that. And it's actually really fun, like, because it fills your head with new stuff, keeps you grounded. You see people who look at the world a bit differently. Um, you know, I love it. Did Leeds United do it? Like, I love how Leeds United. Um, got their players to sponsor a fan and it was all to do with like you know it's almost like these are people that earn in a year what you earn in a week or or, or something at a totally different ends of the line it's just a brilliant what a great way of just getting a different perspective on on stuff now they didn't they did it for lots of reasons but I just thought that was a great example so I, I constantly try to force myself to get fresh perspective and I'm not a big reader so that's quite that's that's an angle that I don't naturally get as well so it's just often for me it's just conversation um and so on but if it was what um but the other thing uh, two more things i know i'm always in a river of thinking so if half the job is done i know i'm over it i know that i'm riddled with rivers of thinking about everything and so if i do want some new ideas i need to get out of those so firstly that point i accept that and then secondly i just um i recognize make time those two modes of thinking so I'm almost going to myself now. I'm about to make a I'm about to make a decision. Do I want a different way? And sometimes, by the way, I don't want a new way because I can't I can't do everything new all the time. So it's so that's the last thing I'd leave with. This isn't about everything you do. So, you know, if it's working okay, then then that might be not the thing to invest your time or thinking in because you can't do it for everything. Um, but but try and just recognizing you know. So I've been doing it that way, and it's autopilot mode i probably need to protect a bit of time just to challenge that river of thinking a little bit awesome good thanks again for, for all your time today it's been a been a brilliant brilliant conversation my pleasure thanks man. join us at ukcoaching.org whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you